Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hello, welcome to the podcast. This is Father Michael O'Loughlin, along with Father Michael Rapp, who's shutting the door. Yo, yo. Can you hear? Um, He'll be loud enough in a second when he sits down. I don't know enough about the studio to know whether or not we're supposed to shut the door. Oh, that's fine. Did you do that before? I, I, uh, I don't remember. That's a good question. Anyway, when Gobo comes in, welcome to Catholic stuff. You should know. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. A this J-10 is Father Michael O'Loughlin, and uh, along with Father Michael Rapp, this is our first podcast together. Yeah, yeah. Well, not together, but two, it's only the two of us. It's fun, and I'm leaving in like uh, ten days. Yeah. So this might be the last we'll for a you. while. Yeah. But we're gonna do two, right? Yes. Yeah. So the last two for a while, you and I can do two. That'd be great. Oh, awesome. Yeah. All right. Is there anything now? This is. I feel like uh, kind of f- full rain in here right now. Like, we don't have Father John here. We don't have Father Nathan here. We're in the studio. We're Catholic stuff, you should know. <laughs> we just took over. I, I want to, like, claim something here. I mean, you got loons. You got Swiss flags. You got Illini gear. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch the flag behind me, actually. I've already looked it up. There's a, an awesome Byzantine two-headed eagle flag. Oh, yeah. Big gold flag with two-headed eagle, black two-headed eagle for the Byzantine Empire. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to put that behind me instead of whatever Nepal had. That's a Swiss flag, right? That is a Swiss flag. And you got the Illinois flag it's behind beautiful. you. That's Gobel's seat. It is yeah. <laughs> I don't know why you sit across from the, the wrong flag. Yeah, I know. You got the one behind you, I guess, for photo ops. But I th- we're going to keep Nepples hanging up in here somewhere. But you got you to gotta put your flag. What do you want? <laughs> we got <laughs> Illinois for Gobel. We got Switzerland for Nepple. I'm going to put a Byzantine that. Empire. Something punk. Something nice. Ah, <laughs> uh, started off right. Yeah, that's Shout a little, out. like calling us to... Loon clock. <laughs> calling us to order. <laughs> Get it together, yeah. Anyway, so you're taking off. You're going back to Rome soon. We'll miss you. Wait, I'm so I, glad. Can I back it up and ask you about that two-headed eagle? Yeah. Because I was fascinated by this. I was living in the Holy Land um, okay. for a semester. You know, I was living in Jerusalem. And it uh, was an opportunity to meet a lot of um, Orthodox and Eastern Christians. Yeah. And uh, one of the very regular symbols in their uh, churches was this two-headed eagle. Yeah. And um, as I understand it, it had to do with the Byzantine Empire becoming the new capital, or the Byzantium the Rome, yeah. becoming the new Rome, and becoming the new capital of the Roman, what was the Roman Empire, yeah. maybe. That's the best yeah. way to say it. So then you have this unity between the church in Rome and the church in Byzantium. And right. it kind of symbolizes, at least in my mind, a sort of east-west unity. This one bird with two heads. Yeah, and um, I always I was kind of fascinated by the thought that perhaps this is a symbol of the desire for unity that it sticks around. There might be um, a, an interest in unity that you don't necessarily see on the ground. Sometimes right. the priests from one group or with the other group get a little surly with each other, but uh, I was kind of moved by seeing that symbol and wondered if do the Orthodox um, certainly the Eastern catholics are unified right but do the orthodox who still have this symbol of the two-headed eagle do they see that as a symbol of desire for unity you know what i need to look into that more obviously i'm not i i had never heard that aspect of it of kind of the old rome which is the city of rome the current city of rome and then the new rome which is constantinople which constantine moved the empire to in the fourth century so that aspect of of kind of the two romes 
um, that might be more of a thing than I knew. I, I, I always heard it was more the, the symbol of orthodoxy because you have both and. So God and man, those oh. things don't, that's a paradox. It doesn't make any sense. You have virgin and mother and, and the orthodoxy is, is a, is a both and orthodoxy. There, there's a way of saying that, that we thrive in the paradoxes. The paradoxes actually excite us. We stand in awe of the paradoxes of Christianity. And so the, the two headed eagle is kind of the, the two sides of the argument that they somehow exist together and allow life within those. But the, the, you know, you might actually have the real answer that that's the one I, I always heard is kind of the, the spiritualized version of it, but the original might've been the two rooms. I'll have to look it up. Oh, interesting. Well, we'll check back. Well, in. symbols yeah. are like flexible that way. Yeah. I like that about symbols that yeah. you can have different meanings and they can be true. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do a podcast sometime on, uh, on the Byzantine church and the Byzantine traditions, but, um, this actually, I want to do one of those today because this is actually what I did my thesis on in seminary was, um, oh, great. was I, I did, uh, I wrote a, a few homilies based on the Byzantine marriage ritual. So I wanted to talk about marriage, like kind of the heart of marriage. Um, you know, people criticize us celibates all the time for, you know, how can you guys talk about marriage? How can you do marriage prep, et cetera. And there's certainly legitimacy to that. Um, I think if I had a, a deacon in my parish that was very competent and married, I'd have him do much of the marriage prep, you know, because he mm-hmm. has that firsthand experience. Um, but it is certainly true that that we celibates, especially if we've been priests for a while, um, we have the objective point of view. Sometimes people that have been in hard marriages, you don't want them counseling other people because they're they're kind of been embittered by oh, the negative yeah. parts. And they, they also begin to assume, I think, that, that a lot of times a lot of marriages are the same. Like a lot of marriages struggle with the same things they've struggled with. Um, that's a good thing to bring to marriage counseling and marriage preparation. But I think it's also true that, that we celibates, not only do we have a more objective point of view of it, we're kind of standing back and observing marriage from the outside, which is a good reflection upon marriage. I think married people like to see that sometimes, um, oftentimes. Um, but it's also true that we have a very diverse range of, in our view of marriage. It's almost like a marriage counselor. You know, they're going to see hundreds yeah. of people every year that have all different issues. And so seeing that diversity of issues, we're not going to be prejudiced towards one of those issues. So our celibacy allows us to have a have an objective point of view of it that's not kind of tinged with any sort of baggage. We certainly have a very diverse view of, of all the different issues that can come up in marriage. But I also think, and this is maybe just me speaking personally, but but I think we almost put marriage on a pedestal. You know, th- there's this grass is always greener type thing. And as much as we love our celibacy, we we see marriage as something that is is the normal call. You know, a call to celibacy is supernatural. The natural call is to marriage. So we we see it unless we get kind of burdened ourselves with too many people coming up and kind of venting about their marriages but we see it as something good that is so good that we've given it up by the call of god to live the celibate life but we we've given up something that is really really good and that builds up the vocation to celibacy yeah and it's like this is the ultimate sacrifice because this is really the ultimate good and yeah uh, for for uh humanity naturally and i think there's something probably um just true i think around the world People know this to be true, that this ideal of love and unity and um, procreation, having a family, uh, being married is in some way like a height of humanity. Yeah. But uh, the the way you talk about that makes me think of like growing up watching these Disney movies and uh, all these love stories, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, all these stories that I grew up with um, that are romantic stories. Right. Right. So they idealize the romantic love 
that yeah. is supposed to make everybody happy. This is what people are looking for. Right. This perfect romantic love. And in a cartoon, it turns out nice. It right. always turns out great. Right. Uh, but in reality, we meet with too many people who are yeah. struggling, and um, that's real life. Yeah. So I like I, I like what you're saying, and I I wonder just about that that dichotomy. Putting it on a pedestal, we got to be careful not to say this is going to be perfect. And when right. you go to a wedding, you're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be perfect. Right. What could be better than this thing? But uh, there is a certain time of honeymoon, and um, and then there's a reality of loving a person through yeah. difficulties. I, I, I will love you for richer or for poor, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health. That's the hard part. Yeah, and old and saggy and sick and pukey and diaper changey. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna love you and all that. But, You're going but I, right for it. Yeah, <laughs> I do think though. Like I love hanging out with seminarians. I love seeing the kind of the idealism and the zeal and the romanticism of the priesthood and seminarians because mm. you know now being a priest ten years, it's like I almost like I think many people would in marriage. Like all we see is the gritty. All we see is the the struggles, and it's like mm. you know. I want to find that romanticism of my priesthood. I want to find the romanticism of the celibacy. Not that I think that's the way it has to be, but I, I want to know that it can be that, at, le- at least partly. I mean, I know there are couples in my parish who, who are the ideal. Like, they've been through it all. They, they've sacrificed everything for each other, but they are so happy. It's like they're almost back as far as I can tell, in the honeymoon phase. And they, they've almost come full circle where they can say, now we know what marriage is, and this does truly make us happy. We're not happy 24-7. We're not, you know, jumping around giddy happy, but we are we are truly rest in this holy mystery, rest in the sacrament happy. And I think it's good for married couples to see the zeal of of young couples, you know, newlyweds, to say, you know, can we do anything to regain this seal? I mean, that th- that can come back in a relationship. So we need to acknowledge the grit and acknowledge the 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 sadness and the mourning that sometimes happens in marriage when that honeymoon period starts to fade and the real effort of marriage comes in. But I don't think there's anything wrong with kind of once we see all that being reflecting upon almost the ignorance and the innocence of those who who have the ideal because we can compartmentalize that ideal for the place where it truly is while not having that as a, as the only expectation for what marriage is going to be. Yeah. I remember someone telling me at one point, this is just a testimony to a pot, a potential difficulty. Uh, they were saying, well, you're, you're a celibate and I could see how that would be uh, possibly very lonely. Yeah. But you'll never understand how lonely it can be to be sleeping next to a person who you feel like you don't know or you don't love or you're yeah. afraid of or um, your disappointment to yeah. or all of these things. And I thought, wow, that is... It's heart-wrenching. That's real. Yeah. You know? Um, and I, like you say, you, you, there's ups and downs and uh, we want to help to... As priests, we always want to help. And I think it just as the church generally... For uh, help everybody thrive and to yeah. be healthy and have happy marriages, yeah. uh, but to be real about um, the the difficulties and the struggle and the sacrifice that defines Christian life. Right. Sorry, I keep rolling around. No, that, that that's Let's actually a, that. a great transition because 
you know, we, we could do a podcast on all the, on all the kind of the personality things, how to communicate, you know, make sure the communication is going, making sure that there's sacrifice involved and, and, you know, complementarity and, and, uh, all, all the different things that make the day-to-day life of a marriage work and function. But part of that, it's not the idealism, but the reality of marriage is, is what I want to talk about today, kind of the, the foundation of marriage. And and I want to do this by talking through the, the Byzantine Catholic marriage ritual. It's the same thing as the Orthodox marriage ritual. But but the, but when the ritual itself has been, of course, has been formed out of the church's reflection on, on the scriptures, the word of God, and also what a marriage is in its essence. So every single person, every single Christian that gets marriage goes through the same marriage ritual. If you talk to couples after 50 years of marriage, every marriage is going to look completely different. But they went through, at least you know, in the Byzantine world and Roman Catholics, of course, the same thing for the Roman Catholic ritual. They all went through the same ritual. So the, the prayer said in the ritual are, are a foundation of, a foundationary reflection upon marriage, what it is. So Going through that real quick, and I'll let you throw in the the Roman part of it as as I go. But um, I wrote my my thesis for my master's degree on on uh, three parts of the marriage ritual. The first one was the ritual itself. Um, second, the the reading from Ephesians five twenty one, which is we don't have any options in the Byzantine Church. You you hear certain oh, yeah, readings. We got you, options. you have certainly a lot of options in the Roman Church, but um, in the Byzantine Church we have we have no options. It's Ephesians five twenty one for the epistle for the first reading. And then John chapter two, the wedding at Cana um, for the for the gospel. Okay. Um. So I'll I'll and go Ephesians, into those. Yo, you'll get into those. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Right. Ephesians, I'm not going to get into too much because that could be an entire podcast on its own, of course, sure, about yeah. you know be subject to one another, etc. Wives be subject to your husband. Um. So the uh, the word mystery. This comes from Ephesians, actually. You know, this is a great mystery. I mean, between Christ and the Church. So we in the Byzantine tradition use the word mystery in place of the word sacrament. You know, it means the same thing. So, right. like Augustine said, an outward a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. You know, I, that's beautiful. I love I love that quote for for sacrament. Um, in the East, we use the word mystery. And one thing I love about the word mystery in, in within Byzantine iconography, there's a really good image here because um, this, you mentioned earlier about, you know, symbols like the Byzantine flag, you know, they kind of go through stages of understanding and stages of symbolism, what those symbols mean. Um, within iconography, there's similar, there's different traditions, Greek and Russian, etc. And then within those are Slav and, and various iconographical traditions. But when you look at an icon, most icons, you'll see like uh, two pieces of fabric or one long piece of fabric kind of hanging over the top of the image of the icon. And there's different yeah. traditions. One of them practically means um, that that this happened inside, which is kind of a basic and boring <laughs> symbol. But like if something happened inside. So, for instance, the, yeah. the birth of the Theotokos, the birth of Mary, probably happened in a home. So th- there's that piece of cloth kind of hanging over the top to symbolize that this happened here. Jesus's birth, which happened in a cave in a stable, doesn't have that. And so there's kind of this very obvious a baby should be born inside. And so when you don't see that over the top of the icon of the nativity of our Lord, you say, oh, this happened, this should not have happened this way, right? This happened in the stable outside, etc. So the, the, there is that component to it. But another one of the traditions for that piece of fabric over the top of an icon is that the, the fabric is almost like on a stage and the curtain gets raised up. And so the icon is the revelation of a mystery, so when we hear the word mystery, especially when it means sacrament, 
we mean two things. First of all, at some point, every mystery is hidden. So in that quote from Augustine, you know, an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. So the invisible grace of the death and resurrection of Christ, the invisible covenant that before Christ lived it out in this world, it was hidden. The, the, The immensity of God's love for us was not as obvious before the new covenant as it was afterwards. So Mystery has two components. Mystery means that it is something that we cannot necessarily grasp with our own human reason, but it was revealed to us. So there was a time, like in in common um, language, we use the word mystery to mean something that is only hidden, right? We we can't know it. It's a mystery. But in the church, that means a mystery that was revealed. So everything that is in darkness is to be brought into light. So the mystery is something revealed to us. So any of the— But then, you know, it's never— totally understood right so that's part of the this trick about mystery when you think of mystery when i think of mystery i often think of something like agatha christie or sherlock holmes where you're in the dark for a little while but at the end you figure it all out right and you know the answer and it's all been you know it's all in front of you right whereas these mysteries for uh christian tradition means something more like um something that has been revealed that was hidden, that you should be amazed by. Yes, stand and in that awe We of do it. know things about it, but we don't. We haven't figured anything out. Yeah. We don't figure it out. Yeah, these mysteries, not these mysteries. So that the, there's, you know, there's within the East we talk about the essence and energies of God, um, the, the the essence of God, who He is, what makes Him who He is. Even in eternity, even in heaven, we will never grasp that. Because there is always something about God that is beyond us. His essence, what makes God God, is always beyond us. His energies are pretty much as much as Him, as much of Him as we created beings can perceive. So mm-hmm. that that's an Eastern Gregory Palmas, and and there's a bit of a debate between the beatific vision of, of Thomas Aquinas. Anyway, we can get to that later on. Uh, yeah, um, maybe yeah. another we time. Don't need, we don't need a fight today. Right, exactly. <laughs> a brawl over the microphones. <laughs> um, but there, there is there is the reality of of we have to stand, you know, humbly before the mystery. So as it's certainly revealed to us in a way, I can say that when a child is baptized, they now participate in the divine life of God. But what that means, I have no idea. Yeah. You know, there's this beautiful tradition of the East that during the creed, the priest takes a, a, an ornate piece of cloth and he waves it over the gift. So the the bread and the wine that it will become the body and blood of Christ. During the creed, the priest is waving this over the gifts. One of the symbols of that is is kind of the the fog, or as St. Paul says, you know, the mystery of God we only see through through in the sense of foggy mirrors, one translation. So that's what this is. It symbolizes like a mist or a fog, because here we are saying the creed, you know, that this amazingly dogmatic statement that I have no idea really what that means. <laughs> what does it mean that 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 the Father in all eternity, you know, begot the Son and that the Spirit proceeds from the Father in eternity? Like I I, I don't I can't grasp that. So the priest waves this as kind of a symbol of we're saying the creed, but do I grasp it? No, not not fully. This the bread and wine here present are going to become the body of the Christ. I can say that it is true, but do I fully understand what that means? Of course not. That's beyond our understanding. So thank you for that, Father so Michael. So there's kind of like the teachings that are mysterious, and then there are these seven privileged mysteries, these sacraments, right? And uh, like you've said, you mentioned baptism, you mentioned the Eucharist, and then there's uh, marriage, which is somehow. Uh, something we stand before, amazed by, yes. but also we know something from it. Mm-hmm. It's a sign of something. So, um, 
yeah, and, and that, that that sign is is why I think we call it mystery because, like you and I are, are ministerial priests. I mean, anybody baptized is a priest, prophet, and king. But you and I are ministerial priests. We're not given the gift of priesthood independently. It's not like God said, "Oh, you, Father Michael Rapper, a priest. You, Father Michael Lachlan, are a priest." No, we, we participate in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So there's this. When any of these mysteries, so the mystery of baptism, someone is baptized into Christ. They die to themselves and they live now in Christ. So the 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 reality of what these mysteries are are mysteries of already existing realities in Jesus Christ that when we receive them we are now participating in an existing reality and are kind of now initiated especially the sacraments of initiation baptism chrismation eucharist into Christ. So that's what marriage is. Marriage is you're not married independent of Christ. You, you now enter into the mystery that is now partially revealed to us of Christ's marriage to the church. That's what Ephesians says. So when a couple gets married, they are now participating and, and, and uh, able to receive, therefore, the grace of Christ's marriage to us. And so th- that's what gives the marriage life. That's what gives it a foundation. That's what allows it to to be a a process of salvation you know couples get each other to heaven through that because the greater they live that out in the participation of Christ's marriage to the church of course the greater they come in union with god so anyway i, I don't want to get too off that. topic because no, it, nice. it's beautiful yeah, that's but kind it's of the big picture theology yeah. of the whole thing yeah and so so th- when the daily grind of marriage hits sometimes you just need to be reminded of that like you know Yes, all these crazy surface things are going on in our marriage, and we're 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 depressed, we're despairing, we're fighting. You know, it, it is this horrible things are happening. But we need to take a step back and rest. And we've, by the grace of God and by the actions of the church, we are now participating in the unconditional, bound love of God in the Church of Christ mm-hmm. in the Church. And I mean, that's something that we need to be reminded of often because marriage can get so crazy. So. The way that that is reflected on by the church and therefore lived out in the in the marriage ritual for the Byzantines, um, the the couple starts down unlike many Western traditions where the father walks the bride down. In, in the Byzantine tradition, the, the couple walk from the back of the church together. Sometimes they're holding candles. Sometimes they're holding icons. Um, in the Byzantine tradition, I should do a podcast on this too. But there's there's a, an icon corner in someone's home. That's where the family gathers to pray. That's where the the space and the time. Of, of personal family devotions happen is in a corner and the corner begins like in a Byzantine church with an icon of our Lord and an icon of the Theotokos, the mother of God. So the way that that family icon prayer corner starts is that the husband's family gives him an icon of Christ. The bride's family gives her an icon of the Theotokos. They walk down the aisle. They can have them blessed at that liturgy. And then the, that's what starts their icon corner at home. Then they can get an icon for each child, et cetera, based on their patron saint. So, they're processing down the aisle in the beginning together, holding candles, symbolizing the light of Christ. Sometimes they're doing baptismal candles, which I think is beautiful. If they've been able to save, oh, yeah, save their like baptismal that. candles, they walk it down because it's another one of those seven mysteries, you know. So they walk down. While they're walking down, the hymn is, is song is Psalm 127 that talks about a fruitful vine. Your son's like olive shoots. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Kind of this the hope of what this marriage will become. And so this, this procession down the aisle is... An, an initiation into the fruitfulness of what marriage can be. Right. And it's like a feast. You know? Exactly. It's, I mean, yeah. it's like Eden, you know? Everything yep. is flowering. Everything is beautiful. Everything is uh, productive. And 
uh, bearing fruit, and yeah. this, this, this is has life. potential to bring such yeah. great fruit. No? An immense hope of, of of the blessings of God lived throughout the couple's marriage, Yeah, mm-hmm. even in the beginning of the procession. And that's actually a theme that runs throughout the marriage ceremony, is is it's more like a a reward given for something already accomplished than it is a springboard for something yet to be accomplished. So the marriage ritual mm. is very much almost like a ceremony of victory. Yeah. Well, rather than a saying, okay, go be victorious, it's saying, you know, congratulations on your victory. And that's because, of course, the binding of, this, of the mystery is done by God and not by us. But I'll get into that more. Thank you for bringing that up in the beginning. Um, as soon as that happens, the couple gets to the front of the church, the the I'm skipping, of course, parts here. So I'm not going to do the whole thing, but there's an anamnesis, a remembrance of the scriptural marriages. So all the, all the Old Testament marriages, the New Testament marriages, mm. those that were part of the the saving actions of God for the church, all of those are reflected upon, and they're reflected upon as kind of a reminder of the the beauty of marriage and what a patrimony marriage has. You know, marriage has been an ancient, ancient institution, and you're now participating in this ancient, ancient institution. So you're doing that, but the priest is also in those prayers asking the blessings and the intercession of all those married people. So it's like, you know, a couple might say, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, please, you know, continue to witness to us what a good marriage looks like. Please continue to, to pray for us. And to, if you see us something doing, doing something that's not conducive to a good marriage, please tell us, you know, we're not only asking that of them, we're asking that of every single married couple in the history of salvation. Oh, yeah. That's what this prayer is like, please help this couple because they have no idea what they're doing. You know, and so like all, all these people that have, that have been through this for, for generations, generations, especially in the church, we're calling upon their intercession. Oh, that's really cool. I mean, like to have even the thought of knowing that all of these people are praying for us. Yep. You know, that quote from Hebrews says, we have a cloud of witnesses. There, All these people who went before us they're really trying to help us. Yeah. You know? They try to help us by their prayers, by the memory of their example, all of these things. So, yeah, I, yeah, I like and, that. And, and they, they see the pitfalls and stumbling blocks that could happen, you know, and they're in a sense interceding for us that, that we're able to manage those well, you know, if, if we're getting married. Yeah, it's beautiful. And especially right there in the beginning of the ceremony. Anyway, all this happens in the very beginning of the this, of this ceremony. Um, the next thing we do, and I'm not, I won't get into it, but traditionally we do not have rings or vows, which are like the, the, at the heart of what most oh, Americans no. think oh, marriages no. are. So the, in the Byzantine tradition, the rings are exchanged at the betrothal, which is actually similar to an engagement. So the rings are given then, and then the vows, we just don't have vows. So the, there, there's a couple of questions asked of the couple in the very beginning of the ceremony that are similar to vows, and that's why in the Eastern Catholic churches we can grant annulments. The Orthodox don't grant annulments because the the sacrament is not administered by the couple to each other like it is in the Roman Catholic Church with the vows. That's how it's established. You, right. you The priest is only the witness. In the Byzantine tradition, the priest gives the sacrament of marriage to the couple, like baptism, like the Eucharist. Um, but there are a couple of questions to make sure there's a freedom to marry and that there is an understanding of what marriage is in the beginning. So if the couple lies or something like that for those, that's how an annulment is possible. But generally in the East, annulments aren't aren't possible because of the way the sacrament is administered. But in the Byzantine Catholic Church, we do grant annulments. Um, anyway, that could be a, a different talk okay. as well. Um, but the, so the moment of the sacrament is actually a crowning. So the couple receives crowns. Um, there's different traditions what those crowns are made of. Um, but as long as there are crowns, the priest says a prayer and then crowns the both, both of course, members of the couple. And this is 
has various symbols. Part of it is, you know, the, the domestic church, the kingdom of God lived out here in the world. And here is, is the king and the queen of, of the domestic church that they are beginning. You know, yeah. that there is a certain crowning, a, an anointing, if you will, a, a mission given, by, symbolized by the crown to this couple to go witness to the mystery of marriage. You, in other words, you two are anointed, you are crowned with the responsibility of showing the world what the marriage of Christ and the church looks like. So mm-hmm. when people see you, they should say, Christ loves me as much as Don loves Martha, you know, and that should be awe-inspiring to them. And then they say, well, how do I love Christ back? I want to love Christ as much as Martha loves Don. Like, and, and if the couple's living that marriage, they've been anointed to be witnesses, obvious in the world witnesses of Christ's love for us. That's what the crowns are in one sense is is an anointing, a call, a, a sending out on mission like a king and a queen have the mission of loving their people and taking care of the kingdom. The same thing for the couple. But the deeper meaning, the more real meaning, of course, is the crowns of martyrdom. Uh, 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 oh, interesting. So when you get to heaven, we talk about the crowns of martyrdom. You know, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, you 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 gave everything. That's what a martyr does. A martyr gives everything, even their very life, for the kingdom of God and for Christ. So the couple is now crowned with martyrdom. And what this means is that is that they have now died to themselves to live for the other. So it is not, they're no longer bachelor or bachelorette. They're now dead to themselves in order to live for the other. And since so you have both members of the couple doing that, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give everything for you, give my very life for you. And you're going to receive my life. You're going to give your very life for me and I'm going to receive it. And this is the the binding and the bonding of the mystery of Christ in the church, because that's what Christ did and his body. That's what the body of Christ did for the marriage of Christ in the church. So now the couple does that same thing. This is kind of the heart of, this is more like a, a victory than it is ascending forth. You know, the couple is now receiving the victory of what marriage is. It's very similar to the Eucharist because mm-hmm. Christ, the first time we receive Eucharist, we receive all of him. We don't receive a little bit of the body and blood of Christ. We receive all of him, you know, which is, mm absurd we have to stand in awe of that absurdity of what christ would do for us the same thing happens in marriage all right i got two things one is a curiosity um what uh who who makes the crowns or do those just like sit around the church or is it flowers or is it metal or what and then um i don't know how long these are supposed to go so i don't this is not the the podcast yeah the podcast i think we've been averaging about 32 34 what are we on right now I think we saw the loon, so we're probably oh, I see. 30. Okay. Or co- just coming up on half an hour. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll finish up soon. Have yeah. right. <laughs> I, I do, but I'll, I'll finish it quickly. Yeah, okay. I, I think we're about average in about maybe five, 10 minutes. Anyway, so uh, great question for the curiosity. I hate to cut you out. I don't mean to cut no, you No, no, that, that's good. Because we're I, amateurs. I need the, yeah, we are. <laughs> we just took it over. We've. Um, what about the crowns, though? Sabotage. So the crowns, different traditions have different types of crowns. Uh, the more Russian Slav traditions have, like, beautifully made metal crowns, usually metal and fabric. The man has an icon of Christ. The woman has an icon of the Theotokos. The Theotokos symbolizing the church in this way. Um, and the they're all, you know, all one size. So you'll see many Russian weddings where the best man, the maid of honor, are actually holding the crowns above the couple's head because they normally don't fit, <laughs> right? You know, because it's all one size fits all. and. 
And so, um, like in my parish, we, we are a Slav parish. We have crowns, but most couples nowadays, because they just want the crowns to sit on their heads, will make them out of flowers or plants. So either one of those cool. is fine. Okay. Either one affects the sacrament. Um, I know some couples recently, too, in my church have have ordered crowns for themselves. So they're metal and fabric crowns are just metal crowns, and but they keep them. So usually the flower crowns especially you would you would after you get crowned you will put them in like a shadow box and put them in your bedroom and then because and then the flowers dry and one of the funny things behind that is that you know it's kind of a witness on the wall of you've already received the crowns of martyrdom so you better act like it in other words this this is a gift you've been given so you can imagine like one of the couples walking in and going look honey like you're treating me like you know what like like, like you already died to yourself yeah, like yeah. pointing at the crowns look at that crown you already got that crown you know this is already a victory for you so act like it um so she's i like you come home and she's wearing the crown yeah. and you know <laughs> she's dying today exactly she's letting you know that she's, she's like it's she's been a hard day <laughs> that's hilarious um so yeah so that they could do that um so there's this crowning um after the crowning comes the readings, and I'm going to skip through these. Ephesians 5.21 is the wives be submissive to your husbands, husbands love your wives. And so this is just a very explicit teaching by St. Paul of, of what, an, what a, a household would look like. But more than that, it's Paul is, is raising the marriage to the level of Christ in the church. So he's saying that your marriage is so like Christ in the church that I'm giving each of you one of those roles. So husband you're like Christ, wife, you're like the church. So the husband has to love his wife as Christ loved the church, obviously. And so Which that means die for her, sacrifice exactly, everything. Exactly, everything. everything. Give your very life for her. So so die for her as Christ died on the cross. When when a husband sees an icon or a crucifix, he should say is that me? A- am I doing that for my wife? You know, and the same thing. Then submissive, be under the mission. You know, the 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 woman is under the mission of the husband, which is to love her. So uh, she has to allow him to love her. She has to love him back, of course, to give him the respect that is due to that, and he has to give her the love that is due to the church, as Christ loves the church. So mm. this is a a very hard thing for couples to hear it, it it should be it should be an immense challenge that couples rejoice in the fact that their spouse is going to love them that much or or you know give themselves that much um be under the mission submit themselves this much but it's also the, a challenge that is that is impossible the couple has to say once you tell me to do that i can't like i need you lord to to yeah. allow me to be a part of this mystery that you've yeah, invited me grace. into but yeah. it's it's really essentially the I think in a profound way, they're living what everyone is called to live, which is this self-sacrificing love yep. of Jesus. If yep. you follow Jesus, you're supposed to love like him. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is St. Basil the Great, who's obviously a celibate and a monk. And he said, if you live alone, whose feet will you wash? Oh, yeah. You know, that. so it's like washing feet is an essential part. In other words, giving yourself charity is an essential part of every Christian's life. If you live alone, then you cannot live an essential part of the Christian life. You know, mm-hmm. and it, it, that's beautiful. You know, so there's, yes, marriage is something we're all called to, to empty ourselves. You know, kenosis is the Greek word, to empty ourselves completely for the other. And in marriage, that is so intimate. This is mm-hmm. the person I empty myself completely for. So, yeah. Amen. It is something we're all called to do, but there's an, a beautiful intensity in, in life of marriage. Yeah. Um, so then after the uh, reading from Ephesians, then we go into the reading from John chapter 2, which is the wedding at Cana. Um, I won't go through the whole thing. But my favorite part of this reading is, is one of those last lines where Jesus, or no, I'm sorry, where Jesus doesn't say this. The head waiter says, everyone serves the good wine first, 
and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. And there, so there's a sense of at the end of the weddings back then were like multiple days. So, I mean, people mm. are just drinking for multiple days. And so, and so at, at the end of this, you know, week long marriage ceremony is when you are, you, O oh Lord, you, Jesus have served the good wine because that really is what marriage is. I mean, it, it's, you can say you've truly experienced the ups and the downs, the good times and the bad, the sickness and the health. You've experienced all those things only at the end. And if you can say this is marriage. Like this is what true marriage looks like when we're no longer good looking. We've heard all of each other's stories. You know, we don't think each other's funny anymore. You know, all the things that might attract us to someone in the beginning, once all those things are purged, because they're beautiful, but they're inferior to true love. So once true love kind of, <laughs> this is a weird way of saying it, but once true love rears its ugly head, you know, <laughs> when we're like, yes, this right here is true love. You know, in in the sacrifices and the joys of the sacrifices at the end of life, it's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm saving the good wine. I'm saving the true Christ-like joy of marriage mm. for, you know, when, when you're nearing the end. And I, I had a marriage prep couple just recently. And when I started talking about this, the, the girl started crying. And I, and, and I was like, oh, you know what? And she goes, she goes, you know, she, she's young. She's early 20s. And she's like, like, I don't want to lose him. Like when I get old, you know, one of us will lose the other to death. And it was like, I've seen old people cry like that, but she's yeah. she hasn't she's not even married yet. And there was this, you know, that's one of the aspects of self gift. You know, yeah. like like when my spouse dies, I I you know the love to be able to have to give that up, and then to kind of go to the heart of what marriage is is a, is a participation in Christ. Like now, I'm in a sense celibate. I'm now have this direct relationship with Christ that keeps me sustained, mm. and without without my living human spouse. Anyway, yeah. no, I love that that late wine because the whole thing is love, you know, and it's it's beautiful. It's like wine the whole time. Yeah. But then at the end, there is something I haven't quite understood that, but I've seen those tears. I've seen that love at the end, and yeah. it, we're all wondering like, what is love? And you're supposed to look at married couples, and I think when you see them on the day of the wedding, you say like, this is joy, and yeah. you're happy. And if people weep, they're just weeping because these people are so happy. Yeah. And we all want that, you know. Yeah. But there's a different kind of weeping at the end where you see them and you, if you, if you bless a, 50, a 50th wedding anniversary or 60th or you walk with people through the death of their spouse, it is profound. Yeah. You say, this is love. Yeah. I've never seen anybody love anybody like that. Right. They're so bound together. They're so one. They're so um, given to yeah. the other person. Yeah. Um, it's profound. Yeah, they, they finally they finally pulled off like accomplished true interdependence. Mm. Like our lives, we need each other. Like the two have become one is such a reality. Like we, like death, the Christian death is a separation of soul and body. And like, you can kind of see like we've just torn a single being apart, you know, when, when one of them oh, dies, no. you know, and I, I think there is this, there should be this mourning of that. Well, at the same time, an awareness that there is always, there, there's an immense loneliness that comes from that. I'm sure. But, there's also an opportunity for a, an unmediated, almost celibate relationship with Christ like we, we yeah. celibates have from the beginning. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. 
All right, well, one more thing before we go, and then we'll you and I, who have no idea what we're doing, will try to turn off the <laughs> turn off the computer. We'll figure that in a moment. Yeah, but um, the last thing the couple does um, before the crowns are removed, and then we move into the Eucharistic part of the liturgy, is there's uh, actually four traparia. We call this the, the dance of Isaiah because the prayer at the end, and the couple they're now crowned. Um, the best man, the maid of honor, will walk behind them. Anyway, so they're they're at their seats on in front of what we call the tetrapod. It's kind of like a, a little mini altar oh, place like in the middle of the church. Yeah, it's a, four four legs. Yeah, um, like so so it's it's a little table. On the table is the crowns before they're placed on the couple, and then you have the icons that they're blessed. You have the candles that they carry the candles. But right in the middle of this table is the gospel book. And so what the priest does is he walks up at this point. The couple is now married because they're crowned. He takes his stole, which we call the epitrochelion, which is, you know, the symbol of his priesthood. And he takes it and he, he, he binds the couple's hands together with mm. his stole. And, and, and the reason he does this is because the church is what has bound the couple together. It's, it's impossible for us biological human beings to bind each other together. We need Christ through the church to do that. So the priest takes and he binds their hands, their right hands together with his epitrochelion. Then what he does is he takes... He grabs their hands in in one hand. He holds the cross, the the hand cross, the cross of blessing, like a, a almost like a, a crucifix in his other hand, and he leads them around this tetrapod three times. Um, the, the you're circling this altar three times because a circle, of course, has no beginning and no end. There's a certain eternity to their marriage, um, which I'll get into later on. That's a little bit different to the east and the west as well. Um, there's an eternity to their marriage. Um, any building you build that's round has no weak points it's like you build a square building some are strong points some are weak points so the marriage is as in a sense no beginning and no end there's no weak points that that's why you walk in a circle um you do it three times of course for the trinity the trinity is true communion the true the trinity is true union in plurality you know three and one the couple have now become two and one so you walk around three times to symbolize the strength of the trinity the gospel book in the center symbolizes the calm in the storm because as as you're going around three times, it's almost like a tornado or a hurricane. In the center of either of those is, is a calm. And so in in kind of the tornado, the hurricane, the craziness of married life, the calm in the storm is always the word of God. It is always the gospel. So the couple can turn back to that gospel and the gospel of our Lord in order to find that calm in their relationship. Mm. Um, the priest holds that cross in ahead of him so it's almost like a beacon. The, so the cross of Christ, the crucifixion, is what calls the couple on. So in other words, these three, this circular movement three times is the journey of life. So you're walking around to symbolize the journey of life. The cross is the beacon. This is the ideal. We're always kind of following the cross to say that's what we're moving towards. The cross draws us on to greater holiness, to greater sacrifice. As we walk around, the gospel book in the center is the calm and the storm. The church is what binds us together. And then the best man, the maid of honor, walk behind the couple to symbolize the rest of the community. In other words, the rest of the community is here with the you. Support, yeah. They're the witnesses. They're the sponsors. They're the ones that are that are walking with them. So it's a little microcosm in this dance of Isaiah, we call it, of their married life, of the journey of what life is. When you hear the the, the hymns, though, the three terparia, O Lord, our Lord, look down from heaven and see, visit this vineyard, perfect this vine which your right hand has planted. O holy martyrs, remember they're wearing crowns of martyrdom, O holy martyrs, you have suffered courageously and have received your reward. Pray to the Lord our God to have mercy on our souls, asking for the intercession of the other martyrs, like this couple's been crowned. Glory to you, O Christ our God. Glory to the apostles. Joy to the martyrs who proclaim the consubstantial trinity. And finally, rejoice, O Isaiah. 
The virgin was with child and bore a son, Emmanuel. He is God and man, Orient is his name. By extolling him, we also praise the virgin. So there's always this calling upon of the mother of God at the at the end of any prayer, really, um, um, especially any cycle of prayers, but in this one. And then as soon as that is done, then the priest takes off the crowns. When he does so, he says, Be exalted, O bridegroom, as Abraham. Be blessed as Isaac. Multiply like Jacob, walking in peace and keeping the commandments of God in righteousness. Then he says to the bride, And you, O bride, May you be exalted as Sarah, be happy as Rebecca, multiply like Rachel, rejoicing in your husband and observing the prescriptions of the law for such is the will of God. And then they take that off and they go on with the, with the rest of the ceremony. They receive the Eucharist first, et cetera, like the rest of the, of the and that is the foundation of the Byzantine marriage ritual. Amen. amen. Do they get to say amen? I love the, that, yeah. man. I'm just like, it's so beautiful. All these, all these traditions are like really, they're fascinating to me and yeah. I'm just marveling at the the beauty of that thing, I, I want, it makes me want to go get married in the Byzantine, right? <laughs> I, maybe, I get that a lot. I can, yeah, I can just like go to a, a wedding. You know, you know, maybe that's enough. You go, go to a wedding, but also if you go to a Byzantine ordination, the, almost all these things are there. The priest walks around the altar three times mm. while these same things mm. are being said. You know, it, it, it's very similar to a priest being ordained or a bishop or a deacon, anybody in major order. So deacon, priest, or bishop, they all go through this. It's the same journey of life oh, yeah. and the same martyrdom that you have for those you're you're giving yourself like vocational. to. vocational. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Thank you, man. Of course. Cool. Thank you. I love that stuff. I love sharing it. Uh, do we do shout outs? Do we do... Actually, I of- do want to give one shout out. Absolutely. Um, my uh, my second community. So I, I have the the community in Denver, Holy Protection of the Mother of God in Denver. But I also have a second community, the uh, the Byzantine Catholic Outreach of Fort Collins, Colorado. We met uh, we meet at uh, Saint John the Twenty Third. Exactly, my, my other spouse. Um, <laughs> excuse me. We meet at Saint John the Twenty Third, the University community, the University Parish up in Fort Collins, right across from uh, CSU, Colorado State. And uh, we meet there on, on Sunday evenings at three. And my people up there, I, I did a shout out to the people in Denver and they got kind of jealous. So anyway, they're, they're, they're my other family, that. my other spouse, my other love. But I, I love that community. They are, they're only in outreach right now. So we're, we're hopefully becoming a parish one day. But they are so on fire and so zealous. I love them so much like I do my people in Denver. But I, it's good to see that kind of burgeoning, that that new zeal that the community up there has. So huge shout out to the uh, the outreach in Fort Collins, Colorado. Beautiful. It's fun to watch Father Father Michael talk about his people because it's like his kids, you know. Yeah, He gets absolutely. really excited. He's got that look in his eye like the, the new, new fathers. Yeah. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Um, Catholic stuff at Gmail. I don't even know. Catholic stuff podcast at gmail.com. There you go. Like us on Facebook. Make fun of us on Facebook. Comment on Facebook. Send us gifts. Amen. God bless Amen. you all. God bless you.